Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. She has been called education's public enemy number one. And though she's never gone to college when Norma Gabler speaks, the education establishment of the state of Texas listens. If you went to a public school anywhere in America, there's a fair chance that some of your textbooks were made specifically for the state of Texas. This is the surprising history behind America's latest culture war. I'm Grace Lynch, host of the new audio documentary, Teaching Texas. Listen to Teaching Texas wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Uh, as a reminder, you can get even more Majority 54 when you subscribe to WMN Politics Plus. This week, Ravi is breaking down some of his more radical reforms, which you certainly won't want to miss. And if that's not enough, you can get early access to episodes of Grace's new show, Teaching Texas, which premiered this week, yay, all on WMN Politics Plus on Apple Podcasts. Today, we've got a special episode recorded live at the 2022 Texas Tribune Festival. It's a multi-day celebration of big, bold ideas about politics, public policy, and the day's news. Uh, the festival took place in Austin from September 20th. 22nd to the 24th. I was not able to make it down there, uh, but Ravi had uh, an awesome conversation. If you want to know more about the festival, you can go to tribfest.org. But Ravi, why don't you tell us about this recording of Majority 54 at the Texas Tribune Fest? It was cool. You know, we've done the uh, recording for the Trib Fest remotely in years past for Majority 54 because of the pandemic. It was cool to be there in person. And you know, I interviewed Liz Smith, who's a Democratic strategist. She was uh, Mayor Pete's strategist. She's worked for Obama. She ran rapid response in 2012 for the Obama campaign. She's worked for a ton of governors from Strickland to Cuomo, you know, just Corzine, like, you know, just a ton of people, Terry McAuliffe. So she's she's a, an incredibly interesting person and is definitely not shy about her opinions. So I think our listeners are going to have a lot there to say. And she definitely has a strong sense of where she thinks the party needs to be going that I think some of our listeners are going to love and some of them I think are going to have uh, mm -hmm. some thoughts about. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And then we have Tim Miller, who was Jeb Bush's strategist. He was also the comms director of the RNC. And he has since become a never-Trumper and you know not one of those never-Trumpers who pulls the lever for Gary Johnson, but like one who pulled the lever for Clinton and has been really forceful in speaking out against the Republican Party. They both have New York Times best-selling books. So if you count them and then you, I need to get like myself moving here because I'm the only non-New yeah, York on, Times bestseller uh, on this pod today. So uh, yeah, that makes me feel really inadequate, Jason. Well, you've done a few other things in your life. You're doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll so start I, with, I, yeah, I'll start with I won't the give stat. You a pep talk. I'm going to start with the Staten Island advanced bestseller. Uh, and then I'll work my way up. You know? Yeah, man. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, Jason, so with that, let's jump into this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. How's it going, y'all? Hi. introduce uh, our two panelists. Let me start with Tim. This is Tim Miller. He's an MSNBC analyst and writer at large for The Bulwark. He was communications director for Jeb Bush's 2016 presidential campaign and spokesman for the Republican National Committee during Romney's 2012 campaign. And he is the author of the New York Times bestselling, Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. Let's welcome Tim Miller. Hey. 
And then we have Liz Smith. Uh, she's a veteran political strategist, most recently serving as senior advisor to Mayor Pete and his presidential campaign. She's worked for Barack Obama, Senator Claire McCaskill, Governors Cuomo, Strickland, Corzine, McAuliffe, and she's the author of also New York Times bestselling book, well Any Given Tuesday. What did you say? It was lower on the list. Was it really? All that matters is that it's on the list <laughs> and forever. If I never sell another book, I'm a New York Times bestseller, okay? Okay, that's true. I just mean, if we're well, ranking. Let's give it up for Liz. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I want to start with, uh, Tim, with your book. You talk about your uh, exit from the Republican Party and that kind of sad, arduous process of you know, both self-realization and I think collective realization that uh, you and some people uh, in similar position either made or didn't make. Uh, but given that I have both of you, one thing that I've been thinking about, and I know Liz, you think a, a lot about as somebody who's trying to build a coalition for democratic candidates is there are all these people who are leaving, or not enough, but there are plenty of people who are leaving the Republican Party. Some of them, have views that aren't welcome in a lot of democratic circles, whether they're anti-abortion or they're for small government. How do how should we think about this coalition and what are some of the moves we should be making electorally and, and candidates and activists should be making to create a welcoming party? Well, sure. I'm so happy to be here with y'all and with Liz. We're good friends. Her book is great, actually. It should have been above mine, so I just had to tease her a little well, bit. We're old frenemies. Be, it might still be. It might still be, you never know. Yeah. Who knows, there could be a, uh, a comeback. Um, it's it's going to be this panel that, that yeah, long, a long yeah. tail, it's a long a tail. Long tail. Uh, I, that's a good question. I, it is one um, complaint I have about the Democratic Party. I do not need everybody to throw roses at my feet and welcome me. Uh, plenty of people are nice to me when I see them who are Democrats. So, so that's true. But, but there is a big kind of element within the Democratic Party of, of wanting purity, um, of, of wanting people to pass certain kind of litmus tests. Um, I always use a counter example when I'm asked this question of, despite the fact that I've been just savagely beating Donald Trump every chance I get on TV and Twitter for like seven years, if tomorrow I made an announcement and I said, you know what, I was wrong about that guy, and I actually think I'm for Trump 2024, dude would take that clip, he'd put it on his little fake social media site, he'd, he'd like talk about how smart I am and how I finally came to the light and, and how great I was. like. He has this sense, because he's a nihilist, like for the politics of this, which is the more people that are in my tent, the better. And, and, and that sometimes isn't happening on the Democratic side. And I think there are obviously um, uh, the people for whom that's not the case, your old boss for one of them. Uh, yeah. But I, I do think that, that there is something to be said for the reality of the situation we're in is the threat is so big coming from the authoritarian right. The Democratic coalition is super unwieldy goes from Angela Davis to Bill Kristol. You know, there's a lot of room in between there. And so, you know, you have to kind of tend to that garden or else the alternative is going to be very bad. Yeah, and just to build on that, um, the threat is so great that I think the Democrats really have to embrace the idea of being a big tent party. Um, and... It makes me sick to my stomach sometimes when I hear Democratic candidates. And so I heard some of this rhetoric um, in 2020 when I was working for Mayor Pete, now Secretary Mayor Pete. Um, and uh, there were some candidates who said, if you vote for Trump, I don't want you. Go vote for someone else. And Pete had a very different approach. And it's the approach that I thought was spot on. And I think that um, Democrats should embrace where he would say, um, your vote in the last election doesn't define you. And if you voted for Donald Trump and you've seen the light, come to my side. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of people had questions, okay, is an openly gay 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, going to be able to play in red parts of Iowa, red rural parts? And one of the reasons why I was able to win Iowa was because he was able to win over um, Republicans who then showed up to um, caucus for him. So We're, we made it six minutes before you got the Iowa caucus win mentioned in there. I'm just I mean, so proud of you. That's so good. Look, it was just maybe <laughs> was if you never worked for a candidate who'd won the Iowa caucus. <laughs> That's true. You would tout it at every um, at every opportunity. But as Democrats, we do have to. It doesn't mean that we need to compromise our views, but we do have to understand that there. There are many different ways to be a Democrat. Um, and if there are people who are willing to vote for Democrats who 
um, hold views that are sometimes at odds with national Democrats and sort of with a party platform, that's fine. We want their support, and that's the only way that we are going to be able to protect democracy and protect essential rights. Can I just offer one other thing on this? Because I do think that there's a sense sometimes when I talk to Democrats about this, it's like, you never Trumper. Obviously, you want the party to like be more... Uh, welcoming to your views of, you know, tax cuts and whatever else, you know, small government, whatever stuff you like. And that'd be great. Don't get me wrong. That'd be great. But I, 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 that is not really what I advocate for or I think the smart thing for Democrats to do. Like, really, this is an argument against interest, like, f- f- philosophically. But, you know, what Fetterman is doing, for example, in Pennsylvania of, you know, trying to reach out to more culturally conservative former Obama Trump voters, for example, I was, I was, uh, I'm going to do a Tom Friedman for a second. I took an Uber from Bastrop here. I wanted to go see a friend <laughs> in Bastrop, and I had a guy that was an Obama Trump voter was the Uber, Uber guy. Kind of a, we probably don't agree on much. You know, he said to me, he's like, I hated John McCain more than I hated the Democrats, right? So me and this guy are not in line. But those types of people, that, those are also gettable people for the Democrats that they're leaving on the table um, uh, uh, by making some arguments on cultural issues that I'm kind of aligned with the Democrats on. And so I, I do think that br- the broad tent mindset that you're talking about has to not just be, oh, how can we get college-educated white guys right, right. <laughs> um, who are kind of already coming into the tent anyway. Like, it has to be broader than right. that. Right. And it's, we've got to embrace policies and understand that, like, a Democrat in South Dakota is going to be very different from a Democrat in New York right. and very different from a Democrat in Ohio. And let Democrats be the Democrats that make the most sense, version of Democrats that make the most sense in the places where they're running. There's this weird phenomenon since, you know, I think Liz, you and I are roughly the same age. I think we're all roughly the same yeah. age. And I think business. that was almost a day. Uh, I'm, the, yo- I'm younger than you are. I'm definitely younger when than I, you When are. I was a kid coming up in the 90s, the Republicans were the bow tie wearing, kind of like, we're wagging our finger at you, telling you how to live your life. Uh, those people are still in the Republican Party, but they've added this whole new element of like the Barstool Sports, Rogan, UFC element that to me were more Clinton voters in the 90s, now seem to be more uh, Republican and trending that way. So I guess it's almost two parts. Are you, do you share this feeling that, that there's this, this group that's kind of shifted and almost, I think they almost define the politics of the Republican Party now more than the evangelicals, more than the small government conservatives do. I mean, the evangelicals get what they want, but they kind of do it quietly now up until recently uh, with the Dobbs decision. And then the second part is what Democrats do about that. Well, you wrote about this, so I'll let you start. <laughs> yeah, this is both of our hobby horses. It so is, uh, yeah. you really hit the wheelhouse. Yeah. I'll let you talk about what Democrats should do. Um, but that is absolutely the case. Uh, you know, we've had I, the article that I wrote was about the big trade in the parties, right? And I, I said a lot of the me's basically are red dog Democrats, right? Who are these college educated suburban voters who've, who've moved from traditionally being Republican to Democrat. And, um, and then the voters you're talking about, which is their more blue collar, maybe college educated, maybe non college educated. Um, again, mostly white men, but and also some Tim, women. I grew up in Staten Island, which is like ground zero. Yeah, that's ground zero. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. People don't think that's happening in New York. They don't think of a New York place like this, but there really is. There's yeah. like a big base for this in, in New York. And they're moving more into the, uh, in, into the Republican tent. And, and this is what Trump's appeal is. This is why, so my good news for Democrats in the audience is like, why well, I don't think that like Tudor Dixon in Michigan, you know, these Christian conservatives, old school kind of, like these, these voters that you're talking about, the Barstool guys, they think Ted Cruz is weird yeah. as fuck, right? Like they were not gonna change parties for Ted Cruz, right? right. They like Trump. He was funny, you know, he was secular. Uh, these aren't really They like DeSantis. Yeah, yeah. They, and DeSantis is doing a list, is trying to do both. I don't, we'll yeah. see if it actually works. Uh, Carrie Lake, I think, has kind of has yeah. their number pretty They're well. like troll. They like sort of troll and like have fun with it. Yeah. yeah. And so that crowd is, is now as much of the Republican base, if you kind of look at the numbers, a more secular, um, culturally conservative crowd as the social conservatives, right? Uh, and so. Uh, I do think, and, and this is more in your area, Liz, but I, and I, I do think those people are gettable back. Like yeah. they, are, they are gettable, um, but a lot of times the Democrats don't seem to be trying to talk to them. 
So, uh, yeah, and I, I know I'm an, I'm an outlier in the Democratic Party. As anyone who, um, you know, if you've read my book, Any Given Tuesday, or I know we've got some, you know, journalists here in the audience and people I've worked with in the past, but, um, you know, one of the things that I did uh, for Mayor Pete when I was a senior advisor is to try to get him on as many different media outlets as possible. We were the first candidate to go on Barstool. And, of course, I got a lot of backlash from people being like, oh, my God, how could you go on that bro site? It, they say so many offensive things, whatever. But it's not an endorsement of their site. It's not an endorsement of everything Dave Portnoy says. It is, they are a vehicle for us to be able to reach gettable voters. And if we do not go on these platforms where we don't necessarily agree with everything some of their hosts say and, frankly, find some of the things that their hosts say um, to be sort of abhorrent, then how are we ever going to reach those voters? Because they're not reading the Washington Post. They're not reading New York Times. They're not watching Tim on MSNBC. They're lost. They might um, be watching my Snapchat show. Yeah, they might be watching your Snapchat show. But, and, and what I've found about those voters and why they're gettable is if you look at the young male audience of a place like Barstool, they are going to be overwhelmingly with Democrats on issues like choice, right, which is a number one issue right now for a lot of voters. Um, younger men are extremely, extremely pro-choice. But why they are turned off from the Democratic Party is, you know, they feel like the Democratic Party is a little a party of scolds, school moms, politically correct people who sort of look down on the barstool audience. And if you don't say everything perfectly and use all the modern, you know, politically correct lingo, that you know you you should be canceled. And I think we've got to give people a little leeway and not be so judgmental of them that we push them into the Republican corner because they don't necessarily speak all of our language. And um, again, I'm just a big believer in, in fucking winning. And <laughs> the way you fucking win is you reach out to everyone. And sometimes it's a lot of people who don't hold your views and maybe sometimes even hold views that are sort of abhorrent to you. But they come out and vote for Democrats. That's how we win. Yeah, and just on this, a lot of people then, the response to you when you say that is like, no, nah, those guys are going to vote for Trump anyway. They're all Trumpers. So when I was doing this article about the trade in the night, I did a separate thing for Snapchat on this exact topic about Barstool. I called one of the Barstool guys and, and you know, was like, what, is, what do you think the politics are of the people that listen to your show? And, and guys like, like mostly Democrats until Trump, and then like some of them went to Trump, and so now maybe it's more 50-50 or 60-40. But, but Democrats are watching these shows. And then when we saw this when Dobbs happened, the head of that Portnoy, was, yeah. Yeah, it goes off on abortion and all this stuff. So uh, like just leaving that on the table is, is just idiotic. Yeah. And this is the same thing with Rogan. I don't, look, I don't love everything Rogan does. Rogan's conspiracy stuff on vaccine is terrible, et cetera. But his three-hour interview with Mike Tyson was, a, it was just, <laughs> like the most amazing interview. There you go. I learned and about like 15 new drugs yeah. from, from listening to that. I bet. Uh, well, we could talk about that. At, at, Backstage, but um, the th but the the people who listen to that are swing voters, right? Like that's not. It's one thing if you're like, okay, Tim, you know, we shouldn't go on Hannity because right. he's just like a bad faith propagandist hack. And like, okay, I'll listen to that. I think probably on balance, it's better having Pete on Hannity than not having anybody on Hannity. But at least that's a sane argument. The people who listen to Rogan are swing voters. Right. Like that is exactly who you should be talking to. And they tend to be younger, male, libertarian-oriented yeah. people. And you know, Democrats are, are, are increasingly the party of freedom. It's Republicans who want to take your, away your rights. Republicans who want to inject government into every element of your life, including your gynecologist appointments. So if you are a libertarian, I think there's a really strong case to be made that the Democratic Party should be your home. Right. And, you know, there are, there are people like, obviously, like Jared Polis, who are speaking explicitly <laughs> yes. to the libertarian He's great, yeah. um, crowd. Polis is awesome. Uh, I think what's interesting is there's a difference between what I'm hearing from the two of you is that, um, are you okay? I'm joking. I went down the wrong pipe over here. There's, Sorry. There's a difference between engagement and endorsement, right? Yeah. And I, and I think we've got to be comfortable as a party talking about that, like appearing, like you start to cross out. I'm going to not go on this program, you know, Charlemagne the God, for example, you talk about a totally different community, but somebody who has, you know, said some things that we can all agree are problematic over in the past, but people still go on that show. People still engage with him. It's a huge it's audience. It's a great show. You know? And he asks great questions. It's one of Pete's, you know, favorite interviews because 
unlike on a lot of the predictable news shows, he asks like thought provoking questions. And yeah. sure, does he say some problematic stuff? But he's got one of the largest audiences. Right. It's lunacy. And it's basically just like cutting off your nose to spite your face. And there's right. no political calculus behind doing it except trying to satisfy a very narrow portion of the Democratic Party's purity test. And it Don't drives make yourself nuts. feel good. Yeah. yeah. Don't make yourself feel good. And this morally is, superior. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I don't, this is where, you know, this is a problem with both partisan medias. And I think, look, my book is just savage on the Republican okay. conservative media. So we could just do another 20 minutes on that if you want. But the one, there is one thing that is similar, though, which is there, there is this incentive from the media outlets themselves, the partisan ones, not the ones we've been talking about, but you know, um, on, on, on both political sides to try to serve an audience and what, they, what are they trying to do? Make them feel rage at the other side and really mad about the other side and make themselves feel superior, right? And there is that like parallel on both sides and sometimes, Plenty of times lately, the Republicans are doing things that the Democrats should feel superior about because Republicans are being cruel assholes. Like we can talk about DeSantis or what he's been doing if you want. But but if there's this daily dosage of every day you've got to give something that makes yourself feel superior and the other side feel bad, well, that eventually leads you to a pretty dark place in, a, in like a very narrow lane where you're all talking about how superior you are while the other side is winning. We'll be right back with more from the Texas Tribune Fest right after this. Ravi, last week when we talked about Athletic Greens, uh, you made the recommendation that I try the whole like, you know, have it in the morning as usual, but then again in the afternoon thing, which I did because I actually had a double header to play that night. And man, it made a real difference. Like, I, I'm not going to say that it's the reason that I had a couple of really good games, but like it is the reason it that could be. I, yeah, but I think it, it, it had a lot to do with like me physically feeling better heading into the second game and having a lot of energy left, which was a factor. And, you know, AG1 supports mental clarity and alertness. It's a micro habit. You know, I like this term micro habit. It's, it's not that hard. It's really not like, you know, eating a plate of vegetables. You know, <laughs> you just, you know, pour it into a glass of water. It tastes great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, which is really important at this time of year, especially five free travel packs with your first purchase as well. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Jason, at some point around five o'clock on Sunday, we were down to half of our players and, you know, we were one offensive lineman away from just having to trot out like a random assistant coach to play on the field as my whole team was having heat stroke. I almost had a stroke, but then I pulled out the comm app and I was able to walk away to the point where, you know what? I don't know. Maybe there wasn't even a football game. Maybe I imagine it all. I'm in a Zen state, Jason, thanks to the Calm app. Calm is a great product. It's not just for Buffalo Bills fans. Anybody can use it. We're partnering with Calm, the number one mental wellness app to give you the tools that improve the way you feel. Reduce stress and anxiety through guided meditations, improve focus with curated music tracks, rest and recharge with Calm's imaginative sleep stories for children and adults. There's even new daily movement sessions designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at com.com slash M54. Go to com slash M54 for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's com.com slash M54. Uh, Tim, in your book, you talk about this autopsy. It's a, it's a really incredible read because what wound up coming out the other side of that autopsy is something that is totally alien to where the Republican Party eventually went. Uh, Question for the two of you, though, is given that we're all kind of in the same coalition right now, not that we need an autopsy, nobody's dead right now in terms of the party, but what would the forward-looking document from your perspective look like for this coalition that we have now taking on Trump? So uh, for the Democratic Party, you mean? I would say Democrats, but I'm like trying to be sensitive. I don't know if Tim, you call yourself a Democrat. You're but, in like, the whatever. Democratic tent yeah. these days. Yeah, in the tent. Yeah, yeah in I would say tent. pro-democracy yeah. forces. Yeah, so sure. if we look at, so let's look at, um, if we look at tw- the last two cycles, right? 2018 was um, a really great year for Democrats. And you know, we, uh, if you look at the people who picked up seats, it's like Colin Allred in the Dallas area. You got Andy Kim in New Jersey. You have Lauren Underwood in Illinois, Alyssa Slotkin, Mikey Sherrill. And how they were able to pick up 
these seats, they were not running as democratic socialists. They were not running ads saying, you know, Donald Trump is a white nationalist supremacist, uh, lighting their hair on fire. They were running ads about um, uh, protecting Obamacare, good paying jobs, like things that matter to everyone's people's day-to-day lives. Um, and it was, it was really instructive because, you know, there's this thought sometimes that everything has to revolve around Trump. Um, and so Democrats succeed, I think, when we talk about the things that we can do to make people's lives better. But then in 2020, Democrats really underperformed on the House level. Joe Biden won, which was the most important thing. But why did we underperform? Um, Daniel Marins at Huffington Post did a great um, sort of autopsy of, uh, of the advertising strategy that Republicans use against Democrats. The millions and millions and millions of dollars that were poured into ads against Democrats saying um, in swing districts saying that they supported defund the police, even though the Democrats in these districts never said that, um, was extremely effective. And it was because you essentially had like four, five, six House Republicans, House Democrats who said we need to defund the police. And what it told me was that like all politics is national now. And what you say in a Democratic plus 40 district, what you say on Twitter um, can and will be used against Max Rose, against this candidate in Texas, against this candidate in Ohio. Just quick against- aside, just an example of this. I just got this sent to me yesterday. The, a Cory Bush quote was in Kim Reynolds's announcement and she's the governor of Iowa. Right. Like what Cory Bush has nothing to do with But Iowa. how do you stop and, that? You can't stop people and, from being who they are in their district. So I, I agree, yeah. but I, this is what I would say is to try, to try to use some carrots to um, impose some message discipline and say to the members of the squad, look, I understand you have these priorities, but we will not be able to get anything progressive passed, any of the democratic priorities passed, unless we elect more Democrats. And to elect more Democrats, we cannot be giving the right wing all of this fodder that will you know, turn swing voters against them in places like Ohio, Virginia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, whatever. Um, and so if you could just please I'm going to send you in for this mission. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm not sure I'd be the best messenger. I'm not, but. I'm not sure how to operationalize that. So it, It's tough. Yeah, so I'm, I'm with Tim in that I think that's not going to happen. So what's the other thing we can do? They're okay. not going to listen Maybe to promise us. them leadership spots. Yeah. I've, got, oh, uh, I've, got an idea. I've got an idea I'll push around. So just for context, the autopsy thing that I wrote about, when I look back on it, the one thing I think we did wrong was we really didn't listen to what our own voters didn't like about Mitt Romney and like what, and we kind of imposed on them what we didn't like about Mitt Romney's yeah. campaign the strategist class right and and the voters were mad at the Republican party for some illegitimate things right like they believed some crazy racist shit about the border and and immigrants and stuff but they also for also some legitimate things right like the wars you know they were mad about um, you know some of the economic uh, the trade policies that had helped people in a lot of places, but hadn't helped them in their mm-hmm. community, had hollowed out their community. And we didn't offer anything to those people in, when we were reviewing 2012. And you know who did? Donald Trump, like yeah. a racist yeah. piece of shit, right? And so we left the field to him to win over those voters. Now, he doesn't actually care about them either, but he did a better job at faking it, right? Yeah. We weren't even listening. So like, what is the what is the parallel to that now, I guess I would ask, for the pro-democracy forces? And like, the answer is, again, I go back to... I'm not saying you have to moderate and have Tim Miller's view in every district, but it's like, let's be smart about listening to what do people want that the Democrats aren't aren't giving them right now? Well, on the progressive side, you know, in, in, you know, many of the places like Atlanta and some of these places, why not be talking about pot? You know, obviously they're talking about abortion, like let's legalize pot, let's abortion, and then you can be on guns, like let's be more aggressive actually on guns, like a 21 year gun limit or 25 year gun Mm -hmm. limit, right? Let's run on that and get people registered and engaged who are younger. Uh, And like that is for some reason a lot of the older Democrats in Washington don't want to do that, right? Then in some of these red states, like listen to those Obama, Trump voters again, and like, what do they want from you that that you aren't giving them? And again, some of that stuff's going to be uncomfortable. We've already beat this to death, like the Democratic establishment. So, you know, but you can just go through some of the issues and say, okay, what are some things that Joe Manchin gets about West Virginia that we can steal 
and, and, and or that Sherrod Brown gets in Ohio, he can steal and run elsewhere. So I, like to me, that would be the answer is just trying to figure out how, how to like look into some of these places and get engagement on people that are gettable. And, just, oh, and like sorry. be flexible, you yeah. know? Um, and because sometimes I hear this, this stuff, you know, online or on MSNBC that like Joe Manchin's the devil, right? And like he needs to be primaried. And it's like, who... What Democrat beyond who's not named Joe Manchin do you think is going to win statewide there now? Because I've worked in West Virginia politics, and I'm telling you, there isn't one. Um, and but there's a really big difference between a West Virginia Democrat and a West Virginia Republican. Let me just give you one concrete example. I um, was at the Democratic Governors Association in 2011. I did debate prep and helped out Earl Ray Tomlin, who was running for um, governor there. And it was the only debate prep I've ever done where everyone around the table was smoking a cigarette. Um, very West Virginia. But um, he was endorsed by the Chamber of Commerce, West Virginians for Life, NRA. And most people like me would be like, you know. Um, but I live in New York. It's like... So I'm allowed to have my New York views, but that's going to play in West Virginia. Despite that, when a 20-week abortion ban came to his desk, he was endorsed by West Virginians for life, he vetoed it. Contrast that with Jim, with Justice, the, the Republican governor of West Virginia now, also endorsed by West Virginians for Life. A, what was it, like a four-week ban came yeah, to his desk? And he signed off on it. So even if a West Virginia Democrat doesn't share 90% of your views, they are a hell of a lot better than a West Virginia Republican. And Liz, you were saying something really interesting uh, backstage when we were talking about Tim's assessment of, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, that you were kind of out of step with the, your own base at a certain point in your party. Whereas we were saying like backstage that there's kind of a weird inverse happening in democratic politics where the base, as I think you and I see it, is not being heard. But the base actually is the positive, like, is where we should follow. Like, there's actually a, a, a quiet base within the Democratic Party that I think you and I believe that actually is pretty sensible. Yeah. That isn't being heard by a lot of the elites within the Democratic yeah, Party. Yeah, where it's like the lunatics in the Republican Party are the base, and you have no control over the them. whole party. But yeah, the actually. lunatics sometimes in the Democratic Party are the elites, right? Yeah. And they're the ones who are pushing views that are not in line with what most Americans you know, believe in. And you saw that disconnect, especially in the 2020 presidential primary when- The like elevator. Jo like, yeah, in, in the elevator, right? With, jo with Joe Biden, when he goes up the elevator. And the like, New York Times. And the New York Times oh, editorial board is, is yeah. like, just Joe so Biden, just rude like to the him. Story. Joe Biden's at the New York Times for the editorial board meeting. Yeah. So he gets in the elevator to go up there and he goes to the editorial board meeting and they're, so, they're not as mean as they were to Pete. But they were so mean and condescending. But they thought to about him. endorsing Pete. They did not think about. Yeah. No, they were pretty rude to Biden. Yeah, okay. And they were so condescending to him. And basically, were like, "How many days until you die?" But so then in the elevator, there's a there's um, um, there's like uh, you know thirty something Jacqueline who I ended up meeting at an at an airport one day. Lovely lady. Um, she's thirty something year old uh, black security guard for the New York Times. Is like, I love you, Joe Biden. Can I get a selfie with you? And it's like, in one split screen, you have sort of the difference between the Democratic voter and the Democratic elites. And I think there are a lot more Democratic voters than Democratic elites. Um, and that's why Joe Biden ended up winning the nomination. Yeah. There we go. Jacqueline, is that you? But let's talk about, let's, let's shift... We've been talking, beating up on our own coalition a little bit here. Let's right. talk about the Republicans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. So, uh, Tim, you have this incredible list of the different <laughs> kinds of Trump enablers, and I really recommend people to read this. Uh, and I'm, I want to just go through some of the characters that we have in our life now in the Republican Party, and I want you to tell us where they like how to categorize them according to your matrix your taxonomy of the republican party yes, sir. and let's start with governor desantis uh and can i jump that, in at all in this no no yeah and within that i want to hear both yours because liz you i'll be very short okay. i know you have a lot to say about this yeah, yeah. Uh, no just really quick for the people who have read the book the, the the taxonomy is i try to explain the book is about why people who know better went along with Trump, right? Like essentially, in short. Like that is that is the, the point that I'm trying to get at and explain their rationale. Um, so the book is not about like 
sociopathic racists like Stephen Miller, right? Like right. we know why he <laughs> goes along with Donald Trump. Like he enjoys yeah. the tears of immigrant children. And in some ways there's, there's kind of like a purity to that, an evil purity, right? right. But that, it's not hard to understand. What I tried to get at is all the people in all these other books who were shitting on Trump behind the scenes, but yet still voted for him or still worked for him. Like what, 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 why did they do what they did, right? Mm -hmm. And so to that extent, like DeSantis isn't quite a perfect character for the book because I do, I think that DeSantis is pretty MAGA, pretty authentically MAGA. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think, I think that he's probably the most like the least Stefanik character in the book, who is, which is the striver, which is I will do whatever it takes because I'm so ambitious. Um, and I think that is really what is motivating him. And I, and I think that he is pretty genuinely, if you look at his actually younger writing, despite being a Harvard elite, whatever, uh, he's always been kind of a contrarian nationalist sort of elite. Um, and uh, and so, I, so that, that's where I put him. He's different than Elise in the sense that Elise is totally phony. It's just phony to the core. And Elise is me. Me and Elise worked together in 2012 and we had the exact same views. Liz calls me too woke right now. Elise is woke Tim. Like Elise and I are equal level of wokeness and yet she just flipped on a dime to become MAGA because she saw a path to either the speakership or the vice president nomination, which I think that she's on the short list for both. Um, and so, you know, she just now will go along with anything uh, to achieve that power. DeSantis has that same level of ambition as her, but with a little more He's also pretty phony, but but on the phoniness scale, yeah. he's not all the way over with her. Well, Liz, you you have on Twitter recently jumped into the debate around uh, DeSantis's uh, migrant stunt. Uh, we've talked about it on this podcast uh, this past week. I, given that I have two great strategists within the um, within our politics here, assess it. We know the morality of it. it it's terrible. Uh, Let's rough. put that aside. Yeah. Like it's a terrible thing he did. Give us the politics of this. Like. Is this working for him? So, so I see it as um, he has very much learned from the Trumpian playbook, right? And the Trump playbook was do something, say something so fucking offensive that everyone's heads will explode, whether it's about John McCain, you know, immigrants, whatever it was. And then you'll know everyone's heads will explode. It will dominate the news coverage for days. It will block out the sun for every other candidate in the Republican side. I mean, you knew this because you were working for Jeb. But it would also block out um, the sun for Democrats. Um, and one thing that, one miscalculation that Democrats made in 2016 is we thought that the more attention Trump got, the better it would be for us. And we could not have been more wrong because it just meant that our message never, ever got through. Um, to voters because everything was focused. It was the Trump show, and this is something Pete talked about, um, was that if, as long as everything revolved around him, you you know, he could win. And I see just with DeSantis doing this stunt, I saw a lot of the same things. And let me take a step back, is that Joe Biden finally was someone who cracked the code and realized that you did not need to respond to every outrageous thing Trump did. Um, because if you're doing that, then you're playing his game, you're giving him all the oxygen, you're giving him all the attention he wants. And so he would say, denounce it, but then pivot to talking about what he was doing. With DeSantis, you know, the second he did the stunt, it all became the DeSantis show. And we had so much momentum as Democrats. Gas prices have been dropping for three months. Um, abortions in the news. You know, the polls have totally rebounded. And dissent, And because we then just did the same thing we did with Trump earlier on, where all our heads explode, we don't pivot to what Democrats are actually doing and how Republicans are the ones who have created this crisis by blocking comprehensive immigration reform for the last decade plus. Um, we let DeSantis Didn't take they the, build a wall? We, I thought we built a wall right, for this. Right. I don't understand, I, yeah, what, said, I don't understand why it, yeah. we still have an immigration problem. But Wasn't the, that the whole point of the last guy, like, the wall? So then we just end up talking about immigration. We let DeSantis completely control the national debate. And there is no issue right now for Democrats that is worse and where voters trust us less than on immigration. Mm -hmm. So we went from talking about abortion, which is our most favorable issue, to having the whole debate being dominated by immigration. And it was, um, it was a completely evil 
but completely brilliant move in a amoral, Im, no, immoral way from Ron DeSantis. And we need to learn the lessons that we learned from Trump, which is not to take the bait every time. And the way Pete answered this question last night, I thought was brilliant because he denounced the stunt, but then he said, what if Ron DeSantis was in Congress? He had years of opportunities to vote for a solution on immigration and didn't do it. And we need to always go back to the fact that the Republicans are the one who created this crisis and Democrats are trying to fix it. See, we have probably a, be a disagreement a, on this. Yeah, a little bit. I have a slight disagreement. I guess I just don't have as much certainty that you do, that it was a good move for DeSantis. I mean, for sure, I don't, can we get a map up on the screen? I don't, but I think where it's is a, Florida? But it's, Florida? Is Florida border Mexico? I, I'm not I know, but it doesn't does, matter, though. Does he have immigrants coming into Florida? Are, there, you're are thinking, they, were these Venezuelans swimming across the so Gulf? Rashly. Like, how did they get there? I know, but you're thinking so rashly. Did they come and, across Mississippi? You know, how did they get to Florida? I know, but, but that's you talking Oh wait, no, they weren't even in Florida. Actually, they weren't. They weren't even in Florida. They were in fucking Texas. So question. So he sent a he sent a plane. Of Florida taxpayers, up. Florida it's taxpayers paid for a plane to fly immigrants who were fooled to getting on this plane in San Antonio. I know. And then he flew into Massachusetts, which is a state that has a Republican governor. I just think he might have been too cute by half year. I don't know. This has a Bridgegate whiff to me. That's what I said. It has on the a little bit of a Bridgegate yeah. whiff that, like, it, that all of a sudden now the FOIAs are going to be coming out, and now we're going to get to see the emails from Ron DeSantis' wife emailing the plane company uh, and like talking about you know Strat and they have edits on that stupid fake pamphlet that they were handing out. I, I don't, maybe, I'm just, you might be so, right. You are but, right in the bigger picture that immigration is a bad issue for Democrats and any day we're talking about immigration is bad for Democrats. I agree with you on that. But for DeSantis personally, he might, he might be, he's in the big leagues now. He's been in the little leagues for a little while. Yeah. And I just, I'm not sure the stunt is going to work as With good the as Republican base, though, like everything you're saying makes so much sense and is so rational. But we know that Politics and how people feel about politics, how they consume political yeah. news, is not always rational. I agree with everything you're saying, but I don't know that the Republican base is that rational. So I, don't, I don't think the Republican base, he's not going to lose popularity at the base, but you know, having a, he's going to have to play a perfect game if he wants to beat yeah. Trump. Right? It's a different animal if Trump dies or something. We'll be right back with more from the Texas Tribune Fest right after this. Ravi, do you have life insurance? I do have life insurance. What about you? We have life insurance on Diana. We have some life insurance on me. I'll be honest, sometimes it's been difficult to get life insurance on me. Turns out when you at one point make international news by saying you were thinking about killing yourself, it's not the easiest thing to get people to insure your life. <laughs> you know, this is not the kind of thing that people get excited to do, but you need to do it. And so you want to be as efficient as possible, find the right policies and make sure that people aren't screwing you over. And that's why I like Policy Genius. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $17 per month for $500,000 of coverage. And Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They're not incentivized to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. There's no added fees, and your personal info is private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. If you're listening to this, there's a decent chance you follow political news pretty closely, which makes you completely different from most of the people who voted in the last election. In Crooked Media's new season of The Wilderness, John Favreau goes to battlegrounds that will decide the 2022 midterms to find out what voters who aren't hooked on Twitter or cable news think about politics. With the help of grassroots organizers and strategists, Favreau will unpack what it will take for Democrats to reach these voters. Listen and subscribe to The Wilderness wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Monday. Well, at this point, people could start to line up for questions. I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm going to uh, get around to some of your questions. We got a mic over here, and we got a mic over there. Uh, so, one thing that that I'm really fascinated by is just the changing nature of the profession. And I think as I read both of your books, you can feel the way that what it meant to be a political strategist shifted dramatically in, during your careers. One question I have, and we'll do this one fast because I do see a lot of people lining up, is just. Uh, People entering this work now, you both talked about, I think you might've talked about Tim about the West Wing inspiring you, you talked about the War Room inspiring you. What's inspiring people now to go into this work? Like, you know, if anything, you know, cause like the show now is Veep, which like is, is although accurate, doesn't really 
move yeah, people. Yeah, I'll just to say team. briefly, I'm really I'm concerned about this, and it's something that I'm focused on a lot about when I do the Snapchat show, which I, I find very valuable because it's mostly teenagers that watch it, and I get feedback from, and I get this question a lot. And I don't have a great answer for them. I tried to provide some ideas, but on the Republican side right now. You were talking earlier about the 90s, the Republican is the bow tie, you know, the Alex P. Keaton kid. Yeah. And that was like my college Republican experience, right? It was all the super nerds, you know, and our khakis and our blue blazers. And the kids that are attracted now to Republican politics, what's exciting them is the trolling. Like yeah. the Trump, they like the fact that like, oh, we're going to dunk on people. I'm going to make fun of these woke libs on campus. And that, so that's kind of a really negative answer to your question, like the negative yeah. scary inspiration. And and there and I just there isn't a great counterweight to that right now. So I, it's something that I'm endeavoring to like care about. But I, I, I think that you're identifying a void. I don't think there's yeah. a good answer. Um, well, I think one uh, the obvious answer is my book, Any Given Tuesday. <laughs> um, but two, because for all the for all the, you know, I sort of write about the good, the bad, the ugly. Like I I still do believe that. Um, that there are really great people out there, really decent people out there who can make everyone's lives better. And like, we cannot give into cynicism about um, politics. But, it, and it is very easy to. I don't think you need a, a pop culture touchstone for this. Um, and you know, we saw with Barack Obama in 2008, 2012, that he was someone who brought a lot of young people into the process. As they brought two, me into it, yeah. Right, two people who worked for Barack Obama. But, you know, I, I saw you know, working for Pete in 2020, like all these like really good, earnest, decent young people who really believed in the process who got involved. And I saw that also for people who work for Warren and, and for Kamala Harris and all that. And so I am less disillusioned, I think, than Tim is. But I, I would be more disillusioned probably if... If, you had um, to talk to the college Republicans. Exactly. You exactly. I promise you. And, it's and, scary. and I think it's just it's for us. It's a matter then of elevating promising young, refreshing leaders who are inclusive of everyone in. Um, so basically, I describe people to judge, but um, <laughs> but it's it's incumbent upon all of us to elevate the best voices, the most decent voices in our parties. Sort of reject the hate that comes. Mostly from the right, but some of oh, you know, a little, a little bit from the far left. All right. Well, we're going to do questions, and we're going to try to answer them as fast as possible to get through as many as Rapid possible. But given that you, you seem to elicit All squirming right, from them, so we're going to go. Thank good. you guys. Thanks for doing this. Good to see you. Uh, two quick, very quick questions. Um, which Democrat do you think is best to beat Trump in 2024? Obviously, Biden intends to run, but there are no rules, so let's pretend he's not. And would that be the same answer for a challenger to Governor DeSantis? And then secondly, I've talked to a lot of Democrats even before the migrant stunt with DeSantis who, who said our biggest vulnerability, frankly, is immigration. What is Democrats' best message, not just about what Republicans are doing wrong, but what they are proactively doing and have done to make the situation better when it looks like chaos under Democratic control? All right, we'll have you take the first one and then okay. we'll take the Okay, I think um, Joe Biden is the best candidate in 2024 because, you know, there's that. But if it wasn't him, uh, if it couldn't be him is what she was asking. Yeah. You answer this because I'm biased, guys. It's, it's I'm biased. I'm biased. Just say it. No, you answer well, no. it. I mean, I think, I, I, I mean, no, I'm biased. I mean, I obviously love Pete, too. So I, I think that Pete would be great. I, I'm concerned about, I, I just, my answer is that I'm concerned about the Democratic bench. I just, I, I, I think, I, I'm concerned, concerned about it. Yeah. There are people that I like. I, we'll see what happens in November. I think that Kelly and Warnock and Whitmer all have tough elections. And if they come out of them with big wins, I think all three of those people are appealing. Um, and uh, I, I, I wish Kamala would be better. Uh, I'm a little, I'm concerned about her though. Um, and I just think that's reality. And it's not, it's important not to We're pretend start like to draft it's not true. Am I the only Polis fan out say there? Polis. I, know, I, I love mean, Polis. I love, okay, so I, like I love Jared Polis. Love Jared Polis. Make him the emperor for life as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> He's doing a great job to my home state. He's killing it. But, I, you know, it's hard to imagine Jared Polis like filling an arena. Uh, yeah. He's an awkward guy. Yeah. Um, so, but people say that about Pete. And he's then, even awkwarder than Pete. Well, no, I, and Pete's not awkward, <laughs> but people said because he wasn't a yell or scream or whatever. Yeah. But then he did. I hope I'm wrong. I'd love to, in a, in a perfect Tim Miller country, there'd be a, a ball arena full of Jared Polis stands. And I then, just don't know if that's to your second, happen. And we're supposed to be quick here. To your, second thing, <laughs> uh, to your second thing, we need to pivot to the solutions here, which is that Democrats are the party that are fighting to fix the border. And it's been Republicans for over a decade now who have blocked 
all immigration reform. And it's, it, they can do their stunts, Abbott, you know, um, DeSantis, whatever, that's not gonna fix anything. And so we need to just hammer home every day that we understand that people are frustrated about this. I think people in both parties understand our immigration system is broken, that the situation at the border is not ideal, to say, to put it lightly. And that, but it's only Democrats who are working to fix it. And so don't fall these, for these cynical ploys that these um, guys like to say. Disagree, the right answer is to troll the Republicans and say that I thought you were supposed to build a wall and Mexico was supposed to pay for it and that was gonna solve the problem and you frickin' failed and you separated kids and so you should shut the fuck up. All right, over here. No, I don't think so. You can run an ad making fun of them. You can cut them off. Don't worry about it. Where's the wall? Yeah. Feel free to cut them off. Wasn't that his only campaign? I know. I'm with you. I haven't seen it. I don't want to be rude to my elders, so I'll make sure not to cut you off. But um, I just wanted to get your question. Um, My name's Clayton. I'm a college student at Texas A&M University. Um, There's been a lot of talk on sort of coalition realignment, both on the Republican and the Democratic side, especially on Republican politics about um, working class that we're going to pivot to a multiracial working class. Um, I think you best see this in the Rio Grande Valley with the tide turning red with Latino uh, Tejano voters. Um, But then also like in Ohio, you see both JD and um, Tim Ryan using working class rhetoric. So I just wanted to get y'all's perspective on this quote unquote realignment happening within the coalitions. Yeah, I mean, it's happening. Um, I do, I'm less bullish than I think the Republicans are about their ability to attract working class people of color. I think that they've obviously done a good job with Latinos. Um, uh, and and uh, you know, so I think that there will be a small movement that direction. The idea that there's gonna be a much larger movement that way than has already happened, I'm pretty skeptical of. If you look at the recent uh, kind of polling of Latinos, it, it, it sort of reflects that. But the Democrats, and so we spent the first half of the time talking about this, Democrats have to be, they have to talk about it because they have to be super conscious of this, and these are voters they should attract, because the Republicans don't actually have a policy message for working class voters. It's all vibes and cultural, you know, culture war nonsense, right? Like it's, they're not, they, they haven't changed any of their economic policies to try to appeal to these voters, uh, with a couple exceptions, like Josh Hawley, but, but for the most part, the party hasn't actually done anything to change, it's just all culture war stuff, so the Democrats have to make an economic case and be intentional about it, or else there is a risk of continuing to, to lose more. Yeah, no, and I agree with that, um, and I, look, the Republicans are never going to win the black vote, they're never going to win the Hispanic vote, um, but there's no question that we have lost some support in both communities, and why is that? Um, I think it's because sometimes we take um, uh, positions that are, uh, you know, culturally alienating. Um, we've seen with uh, Hispanic voters that um, our positions on defund the police, like in the Rio Grande Valley, on um, uh, you know, on uh, Green New Deal, yeah. right? Border issue. Just which is just education uh, and on education, but then. Um, and aligning with the DSA, having DSA elements in our party does alienate um, uh, some Latino voters. But there was there was another thing I was thinking of that was brilliant. Um, so while you think about that, it's also a global thing that's happening and a little bit out of our control. Like literally the realignment's also, the same realignment we're seeing here is happening in Brazil and the United Kingdom and India and- There are some voters we should be doing better with in my opinion. Like. And I would actually group a lot of immigrant vote together. So if you see what happened in Virginia around Thomas Jefferson High School, and then you see, I just recently went to Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, there's a very similar debate going on there where you see Asian immigrant families like my my family was, uh, have very similar trends than you see for uh, Hispanic immigrant communities where they're still mostly democratic, but there's this anti-meritocratic strand within a minority of the Democratic Party, but very dominant in the elite circles of Democratic parties that are doing things like undoing magnet schools. Uh, They don't have any solutions on the public school front other than more funding. They oppose charter schools. You start to see this stuff come together and you're seeing people get very frustrated who should be typically Democratic voters. And and this is the other thing is Democrats made a miscalculation to think that the only way to t- message to Latino voters, Hispanic voters, was to talk, to talk about, about immigration. immigration. And that's just not it's not how it works, right? They they're um, it's not a monolith. There are so many different Latino communities, but um, the number immigration doesn't if you poll the Latino community as a whole or Hispanic voters as a whole, immigration is not even like a top four issue for them. And we've got a message to them on working class issues, on economic issues, as you said in your question. Okay. 
<laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm a PhD student here at uh, UT Health uh, in public health. And, um, you know, I'm also a huge nerd. And um, as strategists for candidates, um, who you've worked with people on both sides and both sides, sometimes they follow like the data and sometimes they follow the, you know, whatever interest groups that they are aligned with. How do you get people to get candidates, to get candidates and, you know, politicians to listen more to the nerds, to listen to the data, to listen to the evidence, to listen to people who are studying something, not just people who, like, have opinions about stuff, but people who have actually studied issues. I'm going to no group idea. the two together because we have one last question and we have five minutes left. So okay, let's group them. Well, both of you kind of mentioned this. But uh, in 2020, there were a whole bunch of Democratic candidates for president who went way out in the left field on a whole host of issues. And my question is, the next time there is an open field for Democrats, whether that's 2024 or 28, you know, how do you avoid doing that again? Because as you had mentioned, that's a minority of the party. And it's basically the problem I call of treating activists like they speak for voters. So how do you avoid that in the future? That's so I actually think these two things are sort of aligned. Um, and the problem is this. Um, in politics today, there's some really fucked up incentives. Um, and the fucked up incentive is that the most that if you want to get attention, if you want to raise small dollars, didn't you write about this? You've I'm got to go out now. there and say the most extreme thing possible because that's what provokes an emotional reaction. So, but the things that provoke the emotional reaction that raise the small dollars are the things that alienate voters and make it unable for us to win races that are otherwise winnable. Um, and so, um, you know, we can't rein in um, candidates and everyone, you know, AOC, whoever it is, they have a right to run for all of this stuff. But I think how we appeal to the more data-minded people is to say, and it, it's like herding cats, but like, do you want more Democrats in Congress? Do you want a majority of senators? Do you want a governor? Do you want a, a secretary of state who will actually not overturn the election results in 2024 if Republicans win? Because if you want to do that, follow the data. Don't follow just what the outrage du jour is online. Um, and we've got to just make a really, really rational play that like, all these state ledge races, all these gubernatorial races, all these Senate races, all these House races, like this is the most consequential election of our lifetime. And it is going to be won if we just try to win a majority of voters. And that happens by looking at the numbers and not just tweeting things that will get people riled up and make them feel good and make ourselves feel good. Yeah, the 2020 thing, just really quick on it. Um, it was, I, 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 as an outsider watching it, like you guys spent like half the primary arguing about everybody's health care plan, and then like Joe Biden won, we don't, we don't even do health care. Like we haven't even done anything. Like, so what was the what was the value of, of wasting all these debates? Being like my health care plan will be more socialist than yours, and mine will be like nobody's even there's not the votes for that. So it was just it was complete. And I, what voters was it motivating? It just it didn't make any sense. And if you just look, I think sometimes I just have sometimes more of a clarity of the outside looking at y'all's primaries than at the old <laughs> Republican primaries because yeah. I was doing a lot of wish casting. And and if you just look at the data and ask Democratic voters what they want. Or what type of describe themselves? Most of them are like, I'm kind of like an Obama Democrat. Like even still today, like yeah. most of them are just kind of like, I'm an Obama Democrat, yeah. right? And so why, like a normie Democrat. Yeah, right. So, so yeah. yeah. So why was the primary? Why was there only one and a half candidates running as Obama Democrats during that right. primary? I don't understand that. There were set 15 people that were like, we need to move on from the Obama era. Right. <laughs> like, look what the people want. It just, was Pete and Biden. And let yeah. me just let you in a secret, like on a that happens behind the scenes of campaigns is that increasingly campaigns, the staff gets younger and younger and younger, right? Well, at least relative to me and whatever. But, um, uh, and there's a lot of internal pressure. You keep staying the same age. Yeah, well. <laughs> We're in Austin. Well, at least in We're in Austin after all. Good reference. Um, the, and there's a lot of internal pressure in campaigns um, that if you do not take the most leftist position, that the staffers will revolt, they will go to the media, they will um, strike, they will burn sage outside of your campaign <laughs> office if you do not go out and embrace the most leftist position. And we need campaign leadership and candidates who are willing to say, 
You know no. what? STFU, I'm here to win this election, and it is not just to, and, and I'm not going to win this election if I just catered to the social media models. One more Jared Polis shout out. We have 30 seconds. He is your man, okay? He's a data-oriented uh, governor right now. I had to do an interview with him about this because the lefty COVID stuff got out of whack with yeah. what the actual data started to say, right? It was starting to go more about vibes. And, you know, so Polis was the first one to actually look at the mass data and change you know, the, the, the rules um, around like masking in schools and certain things. I, I just don't, the incentives are just so ill-aligned for it that I'm, unfortunately I don't have a good answer for you. You need a strong executive who's willing to take some heat from his own side and those are in short supply these days, unfortunately. So, um, I, I can't think of a more fitting way to end than on Jared Polis. I'm so, so excited. Uh, but let's give We're it up for our, our guest um, today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with a regular episode next week. Uh, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589, or you can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Liz Smith is at Liz underscore Smith. That's Liz with an S. And Tim Miller is at Tim O D C on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbenayo. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.